podcast about Catholic things. This is Eric, the Ambassador of Common Sense, and I'm here with... Dan, the Ambassador of Nonsense. Welcome, everyone. And today we're going to talk about... Okay, see, the last four podcasts were about that stupid letter Pope Francis wrote. And the letter was in regards to Traditionis Custodes, which was his motu proprio, what we've all been saying is limits the traditional Latin Mass. Danny says... Now, I have a surprising answer to the question, does it actually do that? I... I have not seen his argument. I mean, it's a short letter, so yeah, it's not long. I mean, we'll 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 read most of the important body part of the letter in this podcast. Okay, so but I mean, there's, an, I guess what I looked at to me, what this says is, uh, hey, there's a number of these groups, and. I don't want to just cut them off, but we're going to have some uh, we're going to have some rules now. Number one, you can't have the Latin Mass at a parochial parish. Which, by the way, that just means a regular parish, like a parish with a school, right? Parish church. Okay, no, it has no? nothing to do with having a school. Oh, it doesn't. Parochial parish. Reason- what it actually says is parochial church. Which just means regular, um, geographically defined parish church. Okay, because uh, places like Old St. Mary's downtown in Cincinnati, it's not a regular That's parish. That's considered a mission church, not yeah. a parochial church, exactly. Okay. Which, Same wow. thing for Holy Rosary in Indianapolis. You know, we went to church on Sunday, and like there, I had trouble finding a parking place, because like, all these streets were cut off with uh, yellow tape, and there mm-hmm. were cops everywhere, and I didn't know what was going on. Wow. So I went to church. They were leaving by the time we got out, but when we got home, somebody found in the news where there had been a shooting down there. There were like eight people shot. Oh, wow. Right, like two blocks down, maybe one block down. It was it's a big kind of shooting. a rough area of Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a really rough. It's a, and it, the weird thing is, mo, it's like the gentrification. Am I saying that word right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like stops a block and a half short of Old St. Mary's. Mm-hmm. When you get Old St. Mary's, is like the beginning point of the rough neighborhood almost. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. And it's like it's, it seems like it's getting worse. Can when we go to you know at. Seven thirty in the morning, uh, you know, all the partiers and the drunks are gone, and generally you see a few homeless who are still trying to find a place to sleep. That's about it. But we're mm-hmm. getting down there, and they're like people still. They've been. It looks like they've been partying all night, and they're standing outside their little apartment stoops, and but, and. <laughs> I mean, whores and druggies and all kinds of things. It's kind of gross. <laughs> yeah, well. It is a mission church, though. Yep. Okay. All right, so, so. And that's one of the churches where the old mass is still going on. Um, 
They actually have two now, old masses per week. Oh, right, right. So the uh, low mass on at 7 Sunday morning, and we'll talk about that during this Okay. Um, during this podcast, and then they must have a a, a yeah. high mass then later later on Sunday. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so you know, okay, so Traditionis Custodis, thats like the big hammer that came down that rolled back um, Sumorum Pontificum, and I think we should start by giving and and recalling a little bit of history pre-Sumorum Pontificum, and then the significance of what Sumorum Pontificum did. Okay, Sumorum Pontificum um, is the motu proprio from Benedict. Benedict, that, the 16th, right. That, okay, I guess we'll get there. And, but. and before that, so, yeah, basically prior to Sumorum Pontificum, um the bishop had complete control. If you wanted an old mass somewhere in a certain bishop's diocese, you had to appeal to the bishop and the bishop had absolute discretion whether and under what circumstances to grant the use of the old uh, mass. He could say, okay, you, you can only do it at this parish he can, or this church. He could say, um, you could have one a week. You could have one a month. Some bishops, you know, did it that way. Or he could be very liberal about it and say, hey, yeah, sure. I mean, go ahead. If, if you want the old mass and your priest knows how to do it, thumbs up. Um, it was completely up to the bishop. Most bishops uh, were trepidatious about it, to say the least. A lot of them were outright hostile to it. But the point is, it was up to the bishop. Yeah. What, what Sumorum Pontificum did is take it out of the bishop's hands. Kind of. And say... Kind of. It said basically that a priest anywhere, by direct permission of the Holy See, is permitted to use the old form. Hold on Provided he has appropriate training. Hold on here. Because I remember, Mm -hmm. um, I have not, I didn't actually read it. I was listening to another podcast and they were reading sections of it. Okay. And... What surprised me is that the way it worded it, it said something like, the, I'll paraphrase, the priest should be allowed to say that Mass at his own discretion. It didn't say he can. It said he should be uh, allowed. I see what you're saying. Okay. And that's what, why what, I always yeah. thought... Instead of whether we canceled it or not, it should be allowed. Yeah, it was such a weird way of saying it. What was the name of the? Uh, I'm going to look that. The letter Sumorum Pontificum. Sumorum. What? Part. What was the name? Okay, it it basically says um, it, it. Act 1 of Sumorum Pontificum says that the Roman Missal propagated by Paul VI is the ordinary expression and the Roman Missal promulgated by Pius V and revised by John XXIII is to be considered an extraordinary expression of the same law of prayer and duly honored for its venerable and ancient usage. And, and then it says it is therefore permitted to celebrate the sacrifice of Mass following the typical addition 
of the Roman Missal promulgated by Blessed John the Twenty Third in 1962 and never abrogated as an extraordinary form of the liturgy. The conditions for the use of this missal laid down by the previous documents are now replaced by two previous documents, I think by probably uh, John Paul II, are now replaced by the following. Um, and it talks about masses celebrated without a congregation. So any look Catholic at, priest uh, in the Latin right can use it. Okay. So article a congregation, Article 5, uh, Part 3. Okay, so 5. 1. Parishes where there is a group of faithful attached... Uh, stably attached to the previous liturgy stably exists, the parish priest should willingly accede to their requests. Um, he should ensure the good of these members, blah, blah, blah. Celebration according to the Missal can take place on weekdays, Sundays, feast days. Uh, how, oh, okay, on weekdays, basically... Basically, there's no restriction as to which days. Yeah. For the faithful of priests who request it, the pastor should allow celebrations also in special circumstances, such as marriages. In other words, you know, when, when a faithful wants to get married yeah. to the old right or, uh, ha- you know, have a funeral to the old right, like our grandma Braden did, uh, the priest should allow. I, I think I read should here as you have to do this. Okay. Um, pr- priest using the old missal must be qualified and not prevented by law. There may be some, you know, like for example, uh, a priest might be bound by law for some reason to, well, for one thing, he may be canonically suspended in terms of his faculties, or he may be bound to a different, like an Eastern rite or something like that. Yeah. And then in churches other than parish or conventual churches, it is for the rector of the church to grant the above permission rather than the parish priest um rector but it says that they're to grant the permissions okay and then a group of faithful has not been granted its request it should inform the bishop the bishop is earnestly requested to satisfy their desire um and then if he doesn't want to do it it should be referred to the pontifical commission okay i just uh, I remember hearing that word should, and I thought, well... Yeah. It kind of says, hey, you, you, I'm asking you to do this, and if you refuse, here's the path for the faithful to make their appeals. Okay. Because, and, and a lot of times, the even here in Cincinnati, the bishops who, the bishop who did allow it, I think, I don't think Polarchik allowed it, did he? It was Daniel. It... Daniel Polarchik. Oh, there's another one. After there was Daniel. a bishop something Daniel. After um, Daniel. It, but or, before Schnur. Yeah. I don't know, but either way, um, you know, it, it was always like, yeah, you can have it, but it's at a weird time in the day when oh, yeah. most people don't yeah. go to Mass. You know, we mm-hmm. had to, he, he made it as inconvenient as possible for all of us. Right. And that's the way it is in most cities. Um, now, but this comes out and it's like, okay, yeah, it takes the authority directly out of the hands of the bishop, which it really doesn't because the bishop, a priest can only say mass, any mass, with the bishop's permission. 
And the bishop can is right. kind of king. He can do what he wants. And if he can sit, yeah. If you have a Latin mass and the bishop doesn't want you to say Latin mass, the bishop can just say, "I'm going to transfer you out of here," and that's it. And most priests knew that. So if you were in somewhere like Chicago, I mean, I'm surprised they're even there still. Yeah. Because then you would have to follow, uh, prior to Samorum Pontificum, you were out of luck if your bishop was hostile. Yeah. Now maybe he'll but get it to you, but... There, there was an appeals process, and the bishop who knew that you were going to follow that appeals process might just give in because he knows this is what the Pope wants. Or he might just make life really hard make on you. Make you go through the process anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, But it, it, it basically said, hey, when the people ask for it, you should give it to them. And, and, and if the priests don't want to, the bishops should give it to them. And when that happened, the TLM exploded. It, mm-hmm. it seemed... I mean, I, I know yeah. we're still a small percentage, but... You know, I know people who were driving two and a half hours to get to Cincinnati for their TLM, and now there's like three masses between us and them, you know? Yeah. That they could go to. So it got, yeah, it exploded. There's some across the river, right? And then there's Indianapolis now, and there's India, and there's even Batesville. Right. So, but. The point, the big point that I want to make is that when people say Traditionis Custodes rolled back Sumorum Pontificum, the point is that pre-Sumorum Pontificum, the bishop was the final word. He was the king. He could grant or withhold permission in any case. Okay. Okay. So now we have this new motu proprio Traditionis Custodes and... I think it's worth taking a look at what it actually does, what it actually decrees and commands. Now, and I've, I've printed out what what is entitled as a official translation. You know, my son brought up something that's interesting. Um, it used to be all the popes before the current one, when they wanted to, to promulgate something, they would do it in Latin. Yeah. And then that got translated into the various languages. Yeah. And then if there was a language where there was either an ambiguity of terminology or something like that, you went back to the Latin, and the Latin, because it was the officiating language of the church, the sense of the Latin was what ruled. Right, and, and then you could say, "Oh, well, that was a that was a poor translation." The Latin really means this, and then you could say, "Okay, so that's how we have to take it." Well, now this pope is doing things like creating a letter, and then just there's no Latin to ground them. It's just put out in four different languages. Maybe he he pens it originally in Italian or something, and then it's just promulgated in a yeah. few different languages. Well, what if those languages have ambiguities between each other? Which one is considered the ruling language? There's, this is a real problem in church church rule and, and sort of church law jurisprudence. Um, 
that he's stepping away from this tradition of, of staying with Latin as the originating language. I would think so, because as we were going through um, the last letter, we found a lot of things that I, I, I concluded that there was a translation problem because the sentences just didn't make any sense. Yeah. Maybe some of them were trying to be uh, ambiguous or even like uh, abstract, but some of them would did just it just you couldn't make sense of what they were trying to say, and I thought mm-hmm. this has got to be a translation problem. So, so this was originally anyway, this, in Italian, wasn't it? I I think Italian is what he wrote it in. Um, I don't know if that's considered the baseline letter to go back to if there's ambiguities or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I, I, that just kind of came to mind to bring up because as, I, as I'm starting to get into this, it's it, the my printout says official translation. Obviously, it's yeah. English. Um, so anyway, the, the first um, section of it is kind of a preamble. Uh, it just says guardians of the tradition, which is traditionus custodes. That you know, that's the the leading words of the document. Guardians of the tradition, the bishops, in communion with the bishop of Rome, constitute the visible principle and foundation of the unity of their particular churches. Uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel, and by means of the celebration of the Eucharist, they govern. The bishops govern the particular churches entrusted to them. Okay, fine. This is all preamble. There are no rules or decrees in in these few paragraphs. In order to promote the concord and unity of the church with paternal solicitude towards those who in any region adhere to liturgical forms antecedent to the reform willed by the Vatican Council II, my venerable predecessors, St. John Paul II and Benedict the... uh, 16th granted and regulated the faculty to use the Roman Missal edited by John the 23rd in 1962. In this way, they intended to facilitate the ecclesial communion of those Catholics who feel attached to some earlier liturgical forms and not to others. Um, now that he, he quotes to facilitate the ecclesial communion and that quote is specifically from John Paul II's letter, uh, Ecclesia Dei, uh, not from the later letter of Benedict XVI. I think that in reality, Benedict XVI actually wanted simply to promote the older Mass. Yeah. Um, I think Benedict XVI intuited uh, quite correctly that there was something off and wrong about the new Mass. Yeah. Um, okay. In line with the initiative of my venerable predecessor, Benedict XVI, to invite the bishops to assess the application of the Motu Proprio Sumorum Pontificum three years after its publication, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith carried out a detailed consultation of the bishops in 2020. Yeah, we remember that. A lot longer than three years. Yeah. (laughs) The results have been carefully considered in the light of experience that has matured during these years. Um, We don't even have to say anything. He does not reveal. Yeah. He does not reveal what what the result of that consultation is. But I I think what he actually means was that it was alarming. That far from 
being a dying breed of Catholics, those who preferred the old mass were vibrant and growing and dynamic and young. Yeah, young is the big thing. Scared the bejeebers out of them because these are a bunch of old men who can't understand why their program isn't still the favored program. Then he said, at this time, having considered the wishes expressed by the Episcopate and having heard the opinion of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, again, he doesn't say what those wishes are. He doesn't say what that opinion is. I now desire with this apostolic letter to press on evermore in the constant search for ecclesial communion. In other words, we need to bring the hammer down against these rabble-rousers who are sticking with the old way. Therefore, I have considered it appropriate to establish the following. Okay, now we get into the meat of the letter. This is the point where we're going to start taking it apart bit by bit. Okay, Article 1. The liturgical books promulgated by St. Paul VI and St. John Paul II in conformity with the decree of Vatican II are the unique expression of the Lex Arandi of the Roman Rite. Okay, let me dwell on this for a minute. This is... This is a self-refuting article because if he had just said the liturgical books promulgated by St. Paul VI and St. John Paul II are the unique expression of the Lex Arandi of the Roman Rite, that would have been the end of it. That would have, that would have stood on its own and it would have been, okay, he, he, he's trying to get rid of Benedict XVI's establishment of the ordinary form and the extraordinary form of the same Lex Arandi, the two forms of the Lex Arandi. Okay, what is Lex Arandi? Uh, and the law of prayer of the church. So he's In saying... In other words, the, the Lex Arandi is almost synonymous with the word liturgy as we discussed it the other week. Okay. You know, when you consider it as the broader, the official public prayer of the church. Okay. And he's saying that but, the, the, the books promulgated by uh, these two popes is the unique expression. Now see, the unique expression. He's, he's trying poorly. He, he's, doing this, he's, he's doing this poorly. But what he's trying to do is unroll uh, Benedict XVI where he says, the Roman Missal promulgated by Paul VI is the ordinary expression of the Lex Arandi, and that promulgated by Pius V is to be considered an extraordinary expression of the Lex Arandi. He's saying, no, we only have now, under my decree, one expression of the Lex Arandi, and it's the Paul VI Mass. Okay. That, that's what he's trying to do, is unroll this... Ordinary versus extraordinary form of the Lex Orandi. Well, I would said, just point out okay. here, I know you've got another point, but the unique expression could mean that it's unique or could, but it doesn't mean that it's the only one the way I think he wanted it to mean. I know. That's why I said it's it's a poorly worded construction. Yeah. He, he I mean, he should have said singular expression. That would have... Or, uh, or soul expression, or only expression. But here's the problem. Wh- whether he means that or not, so first of all, by allowing the continued use of the other expression, 
he completely undermines the sentence. This sentence is not a decree. It's a, it's a statement. It's a declarative statement. Yeah. And yet the declarative statement is obviously wrong because he's allowing, of you know, under more tightly controlled conditions, people to continue to use that other expression. Yeah. Therefore, this isn't the unique expression or the sole expression or whatever. It's, it, it's, he sh- He's really undermining himself by even putting that paragraph there because it's like, well, obviously, this paragraph, this article means nothing. It's a declaration that is completely uh, ineffectual for any purpose whatsoever, especially any kind of uh, command purpose. Okay, but but here's the other thing that makes this first paragraph, this first article, um, let's say, on its face... um, impotent and meaningless he says the liturgical books promulgated by these two popes in conformity with the decrees of vatican council too well guess what neither pope promulgated books that were in conformity with the decrees of vatican council too we've read the beginning of sacrosanctum concilium from the first book of vatican council too the one that actually talks about the reformation of the liturgy and the mass and we've already established a number of points on which the new mass fails to be in conformity with that decree right so there are no books promulgated by saint paul the sixth and saint john paul the second that are in conformity with the decrees of the second vatican council period right mic drop these don't exist and yet they're the unique expression of the lex Orandi. And okay, moving on. Well, wait a minute, yeah, though, because we would point out that one thing that you talked about last uh, week. I think it was last week that if if it was the unique expression, that means that all yeah, the other expressions are term. gone. Yeah, it means they don't exist. It, that means that and yet they clearly do. <laughs> that that the old mass is no isn't valid. Yeah, that's for two thousand years for we've been using a, a mass that isn't valid. How could we have done that? Exactly, because unique is a unambiguous word. It's a it's a a um, univocal word. If yeah. if this is the unique expression of the lex orandi, that means we didn't ever actually have any expression of the lex orandi before uh, nineteen seventy. Yeah, so. Yeah. So anyway, okay. The that entire article is is like wrong. Right. It's a declarative article, not a decree, and it's wrong on so many levels that it's completely meaningless. Right. Okay. Article two. It belongs to the diocesan bishop as moderator, promoter, and guardian of the whole liturgical life of the particular church entrusted to him to regulate the the liturgical celebrations of the diocese. Okay, it I let me read that sentence again. It belongs to the diocesan bishop as moderator, promoter, and guardian of the whole liturgical life of the particular church entrusted to him to regulate the liturgical celebrations of his diocese. This is a decree. This does have the force of introducing new law, and he's now saying the bishop is the guy. 
Okay. And then he goes on. Therefore, it is his exclusive competence to authorize the use of the 1962 Roman Missal in his diocese. Now, according to the guidelines of the Apostolic See. Okay, and it's those guidelines that are, we're going to get into. Yeah. But this this is taking away the appeal process and that, that designation by the Pope to the individual priest saying, hey, I want you parish priest to go ahead and give this to the faithful. And even... I would I would say that this properly takes away from the priest even the discretion on his own to use the old form in private masses because it's the bishop's exclusive confident, competence to authorize the use of the older missal. Um, yeah. And it doesn't make a distinction between masses um, with congregations or without congregations. Now, one of the things is... Uh, and Benedict the Sixteenth recognized that ma- the mass doesn't need a congregation to be valid. I don't think this pope even believes that a mass without a congregation is valid, and so I don't think he even cares to address that concern. Yeah, that's why he doesn't bring up the distinction here. Well, I mean, we've already established that his own his own understanding of the mass is is so incorrect. Yeah, it's as, flawed. You know as to lead to all kinds of weird things in, in his reasoning. And, but okay. you know, so, wait a minute, you have to mm-hmm. make one distinction here. Um, yeah. I don't think most, most of the TLMs being celebrated are actually pre 1962, aren't they? Didn't no, the 1962 pre- drop oh, the f- prayers at the foot of the altar and a cut? No, and no, 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 The no. prayer to St. Michael. What, what, no, what what the night it, it might have dropped the prayer to Saint Michael, but that would be something after the mass itself is over. So whether people stayed and even the priest stayed and did that would would not be necessarily part of a liturgical, um, you know, part of okay. the liturgical rule. But um, what the 1962 um, mass did do, uh, I believe, under John the twenty third was it permitted, didn't command, but it permitted the entire congregation to join the servers in oh, their yeah. part, in speaking out loud their part of the prayers at the foot of the altar. Yeah, okay. So, all right. So, Article 3, and this is where we start getting down to it. The bishop of the diocese in which... Until now, there exist one or more groups that celebrate according to the Missal antecedent to the reform of 1970. And then there's a colon, and then it has uh, one, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs of things that such a bishop is to do. Let okay. me stop on that for a minute and point out the way this is worded. The bishop of the diocese in which until now. And then it lists these things that, that such a bishop has to do. If a bishop, as of the promulgation of Traditionis Custodes, does not have in his diocese one or more groups that celebrate according to the missal, the old missal, antecedent to 1970, 
then yeah. that bishop is completely unbound by these paragraphs, these, you know, parts of Article 3. Even if such groups arise in his diocese later. Yeah, that's if if we're going to go, okay, yeah, if the way if it's worded, this you're right. only applies to those bishops in like, whose diocese in which until now there exists. Yeah, it doesn't say in which there exists until now. Yeah. That that means, well, Cincinnati would be included in that, but... Uh, Cincinnati would. I uh, guess... Probably Indianapolis, but there may be dioceses out there that didn't actually have a group, and that the bishop of that diocese, let's say a real conservative bishop came into that diocese later, he goes back and he looks at the history, well, I didn't have any groups in my diocese uh, up until the promulgation of Traditionis Custodis. He's got free reign. He doesn't have to follow any of these things in here. Yeah, he does, but I would wonder, how many dioceses are there in the U.S.? Uh, let's find out. What do you mean, yeah, he does? He I doesn't mean, have to, I mean, yeah, have to you're follow right. anything in Article 3. Okay, I mean, yeah, you're right, but how many dioceses are there in... Um, hold on, let's find out. I'm typing it in now, in the U.S., uh, uh, I don't thirty-two. Care about I want to know about uh, territorial and one hundred forty-four. Oh, thirty-two archdioceses and one hundred forty-four dioceses. Okay, there probably aren't very many dioceses that, that didn't no. have. If that there are, already. it's yeah, it's it's if there are any such dioceses, it's because the bishop in that diocese until now has been a real. Sure. Um, hard nose and super hostile to the ancient mass and, yeah. you know, has done everything to suppress it. But my point is that in that diocese, if, if that bishop was later replaced by a conservative bishop, that conservative bishop, you know, ju just the way this is worded, right. uh, would be unaffected. Could by go ahead and do it. Yeah. Now here's the thing I, I want to, uh, before moving on to the, particular points of article three i want to dwell on the word groups because it says in which until now there exist one or more groups that celebrate according to the missile antecedent antecedent to the reform what does he mean by groups let me give you an example so you um a while ago i was i think it was over a year ago st started going to the 7 a.m early mass at old saint mary's the low mass and you would take whatever kids wanted to go with you. Your kids, cousins, their friends, anybody wanted to go with you. If they got up and went with you, that 7 a.m. mass. And then afterwards, you would take them out to breakfast. Yeah. Now, that grew in popularity to the point where it was too expensive to keep taking them out to breakfast at a restaurant. And so now you do the thing where you go to the grocery store and you get you know the makings of, of eggs and pancakes and uh, hash browns and sausages and bacon and all that kind of stuff and and have a great big really nice breakfast at your home and some of the kids who are regulars uh they know what to do they help in the preparation of the meal and everything everybody's got their roles it is really a wonderful thing to see all of that going on yeah but that's not 
that doesn't count as a group in, would, in terms of this letter. When it says one or more groups, that's not what this letter means by a group. I would think not. No, because we get into things like the bishop is to determine that these groups do not deny the validity and legitimacy, blah, blah, blah. Well, obviously, the Pope isn't calling on the bishop to stand outside a church and identify, oh, you 16 people always come in together. You must be a group. And let me elicit from each one of you, members of this group, that you don't deny this or that or whatever. We're talking about groups with canonical status. We're talking about groups that have an established canonical leadership who is capable of competently saying that as a group, even though not every member to a team might agree, but we as a group have this official stance with regards to things like the reforms of Vatican II, the Magisterium of the Supreme Pontus, and so forth. Okay. That can only be what is meant by groups when you look through the rest of this document and, and how it relates to these groups. So we're not talking about, we're not even talking about a whole parish. No, we're talking who about... Who happens to attend the, the traditional mass, if they do. That would not be a group according to how this document is laid out and what this document is saying have, has to be done with groups. Okay, so a group is something very narrow within the construction of this document. And if, if you are a, a member of a, one of these groups, you probably know it. Like yeah. the oratory that mom's talking about is probably such a group. But the parish of Old St. Mary's, I don't think is such a group. Right. But it's run by so, one of those groups, though, isn't it? Could be, yeah. But that's not, that's, that's, that doesn't go to my point. Okay. My point, I just wanted to, to kind of talk a little bit about when we see the word groups here, we should be envisioning something very specific. We're talking about... Like very clearly defined canonically in the not church. SSPX, but the the Ecclesia the, Day and and that okay. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now, so the bishop in the di- of the diocese in which until now there exists one or more groups that celebrate according to the old mass, the old missal. Here's what this bishop has to do: one is to determine that these groups do not deny the validity of and the legitimacy of the liturgical reform uh, dictated by count, the council and the magisterium of the Supreme Pontiffs. Um, okay, whatever. Uh, so you've got to get the leader of that group to say, yes, I don't deny the, legitis- the validity and legitimacy of the liturgical reform that was dictated by the Second Vatican Council. Which we now, pointed out was not what happened. Yeah, I, I, I was just thinking, it's like, okay, if you called on me personally, uh, I would say, yeah, I don't deny the uh, validity and legitimacy of that, but I also don't agree that the liturgical forms that happened were the ones dictated by Vatican, 
council too. So right. I don't, I don't know where that leaves somebody like us. Yeah. I, but it, it it really doesn't have anything to do with with where I'm going with this whole yeah. argument. Okay. Okay. Number two, the bishop is to designate one or more locations where the faithful adherents of these groups may gather for the Eucharistic celebration. However, not in parochial churches and without the erection of new personal parishes. Now notice, he didn't say is to designate one or more locations where the old mass may be said. He said is to designate one or more locations where the faithful adherents of these groups, and we just spent time discussing what is meant by the word group in the context of this motu proprio. Okay. It doesn't mean just a collection of people that like the old mass. That is not a group in the context of this motu proprio. If an individual priest, for example, by permission of the bishop, just says the old mass because he wants to, and anybody who wants to show up can, but it's not associated with some canonical group or canonically attached group or anything like that, well, that priest and the people who show up to that mass don't constitute a group according to this letter, or rather, as this letter refers to groups. Not in this paragraph anyway. Well, not in the all the paragraphs of this article. Okay. Because uh, the, 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 the groups, the, the groups of all of these paragraphs, paragraphs 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, was introduced in the introductory language of Article 3. So the word group is the same throughout the whole article. Yeah, okay. Okay. So he doesn't say the bishop is to designate locations where the old mass may be said. He said the bishop is to designate locations where the faithful adherents of these groups, these special bodies, may gather for Eucharistic uh, celebration. Okay. All right. Okay, fine. So if you're one of these, like, canonically associated or recognized uh, groups, you know, you have some kind of grant of of ecclesial, um, you know, reality or, or corpus or, or corpor- incorporation or something within the diocese or within the broader church, then the bishop can say, okay, your group can meet at this place and it can't be a parish church. You know, it, it has to be, you know, someplace that isn't a parochial church like old St. Mary's or whatever. Okay. Or like, um, so if you belong to the fraternity of St. Peter, uh, you are in a group. If you're just a couple people, you're not in a group. There's nothing yeah. here keeping you from having a priest, if you could convince him to having a mass, in a, even even in a parochial uh, church. More to the point, there's nothing here preventing the bishop from allowing a priest to do that. Yeah, okay. And that's my point. My okay. point is that within the context, and we'll continue on, of Traditionis Custodas, the bishops have a lot more power than people assume they do. All right, we'll go to number uh, three. 
the bishop is to establish at the designated locations, which locations? The ones that he designated in paragraph two, which is related to the gathering of adherents of groups. The bishop is to establish at the designated locations the days on which Eucharistic celebrations are permitted using the old uh, rite of the Mass. In these celebrations, the readings are proclaimed in the vernacular language using translations of the sacred scripture approved for liturgical use by the respective Episcopal conferences, blah, blah, blah. He's just saying that you have to do the readings in, you know, in in your local language. Well, most masses, they do that anyway. This is a little bit annoying because if you wanted to have weekday masses and, and you were one of these groups. Now, if you're not one of these groups. You don't have to. Then and the bishop is just giving you permission outside of any group context to have the old mass. This wouldn't apply. But if you're one of these groups and he allows you to have weekday masses, well, now you know a lot of times they don't reread the readings on a weekday mass because it it just makes the mass longer. And all you want to do is go to mass and receive holy communion and then get on to work. Right. But this, the pope is saying, no. You, you you gotta reread them in the vernacular too, even if it's a weekday or whatever. So he's he's okay. kind of making it less convenient for people by doing that. Yeah. Okay. Number four. The bishop is to appoint a priest who as a delegate of the bishop, delegate uh, a de- delegate is somebody who you know the bishop delegates authority to yeah. um <clears throat> with regards to some kind of activity. In this case, uh, is entrusted with these celebrations. Which celebrations? The celebrations referred to in paragraph three at the locations indicated in paragraph two where the adherents of these groups may gather. So we're still talking about group, these very Mm -hmm. narrowly defined special groups here. Uh, And with the pastoral care of these groups of the faithful. This priest should be suited for this responsibility, skilled in the use of the old mass, possess a knowledge of the Latin language sufficient for a thorough comprehension of the rubrics and liturgical texts and be animated. That's one thing is that, I mean, I think most of the priests that are doing this, they do know enough Latin to understand what they're saying when they say the mass. But in reality, if you're saying the mass in Latin, you don't actually need to know the Latin. We've talked about this when going through you know, right in the, the previous podcasts. Um, it says the priest should be um, animated by a lively pastoral charity, whatever that means, and a sense of ecclesial communion. So the, the Pope is trying to put here that these priests should be interested in getting these people away from the old mass into the new mass. Yeah. This priest should have at heart not only the correct celebration of the liturgy, but also the pastoral and spiritual care of the faithful. Okay, whatever. I mean, if you take the that words every as priest, they but... as they mean, that that's every priest, exactly. Yeah. Okay, that was number four. Again, you know, all right. Group. Number five. The bishop is to proceed suitably to verify that the parish is canonically erected for the benefit of these faithful. Which faithful? The faithful... Uh, who groups. are adherents of these groups. So again, we're still talking about these special, narrowly defined groups in the context 
of this these decrees. Uh, the parishes canonically erected for the benefit of these faithful are effective for their spiritual growth and determine whether or not to retain them. Um, okay, whatever, I, you know. <laughs> Again, has nothing to do with the celebration of the Mass. And yeah. then number six, to take care not to authorize the establishment of new groups. Okay. We just went through the entirety of Article 3. We did not find, at least I do not see, if you saw it, you can bring it up, a single line that said that the bishop is not allowed to authorize the use of the old mass outside of the context of these groups. Other than to keep new groups from forming. Yeah, I know. He, he can't establish new groups, but outside of the context of groups, he, I yeah. didn't see anywhere where it says that the bishop can't authorize the use of the old mass. Yeah. Okay. If, if he tells a priest at St. Martin's, let's say Father Hamilton, you know, just like reads something that, that turns his heart and he becomes on fire for the old mass... Uh, and assuming that he knows enough Latin to do it and stuff like that. Yeah. And he goes to Bishop Schnur and says, hey, I want to start doing the Old Mass once a week at, old, at uh, St. Martin's. I don't see anything that we've read so far that prevents Bishop Schnur from saying, yeah, Father Hamilton, you can go ahead and do that. Okay, not not so far. I, have you? No. Yeah, not so far. Okay. So, and, and that's what I mean. This isn't a loophole. It's like, there's no loop to have a hole. There's no prescription of the use of the old mass here that, that to try to find a hole in. Well, other okay. than the fact that most uh, most of the Tridentine masses are said by these groups. Yes, I agree. They are. There's I'm very just few that aren't. In terms of the authority of bishops, yeah, I don't see that it has to be constrained that way. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Okay. All right. Okay, now we go on to the other articles of the letter. Article 4. And this, um, is, this is the one that is meant to be the nail in the coffin of the old mass. Not immediately, but over time. It says, yeah. priests ordained af after the publication of the present motu proprio, who wish to celebrate using the old uh, missal should submit a formal request to the diocesan bishop who shall consult the apostolic see before granting this authority. Now, here's what's interesting. <laughs> um, so it says the obvious intention here is, oh, we're just going to, we're going to like cut off completely or maybe to the tiniest trickle, the creation of priests who are even capable and competent to say yeah. the old mass. And by doing that, we'll get rid of the old mass within a generation. Obviously, that's the intention here. Right. But here's what's interesting. It says the priest should submit a formal request to the bishop. Okay. The bishop shall consult the apostolic see before granting this authorization. It does not say 
that the bishop shall obtain approval from the apostolic see. It does not say that. It says the bishop shall consult. It doesn't even say that the bishop shall obtain an opinion and follow the opinion. It just says the bishop shall consult. So once he's consulted, it's then like, he okay, can go ahead and grant authorization. All right, priest, here you go. Now, to me, I mean, as a as a strict textualist when it comes to law, that's what it means to me. Yeah. Uh, the only right. question is, if a bishop says, consults the see and says, I've got a priest here who wants to say Latin mass, um, the... The answer back could be binding. I know that that's that's the thing is I mean it's like even so the bishop consults the apostolic see, but if and and if the response to the apostolic see comes back in a manner that it would be a, an act of disobedience to right. grant permission or to grant authorization, well then yeah that's problematic. But if it's in if it's anything short of that. Yeah, if it's like and this document. Textually, the bishop then... can go ahead and grant authorization. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then number five. Priests who already celebrate according to the old missal should request from the diocesan bishop the authorization to continue to enjoy this faculty. So that's just saying, okay, all the priests who have been doing it so far, they should re-up with their bishop. All right, whatever. But again, this is only uh, should. Yeah, it does say should. I, I doesn't I, say just must. Just like I did in Sumorum Pontificum, I, I, I read should as you got to do this. Okay, I, I know but, that but that's you think thing. that, but... If wait, Sumorum if... Pontificum, if if we read Sumorum Pontificum that way, that, that the priest should acquiesce to the requests of his parishioners, and if we say, oh, that doesn't mean he must, well, then we should read this should in the same light. Yeah, if you tell a child you shouldn't watch TV all night, do you think that is laying down a law? Are you good? I mean, is he going to think that is? Oh, mom said I can't watch TV all night, or dad said I no can't child watch TV would. All night. No, no way. No, that's, he that's just true. doesn't want me that's to. That's exactly true. Uh, yep. That's an important word, I think. So yeah. okay, yeah. okay, and then number six: institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life erected by blah blah blah. Uh, fall under the competence of the congregation. So this is just saying that, okay, now um, certain kinds of, of groups within the church fall under the, uh, one of the dicasteries of the Holy See. Um, Article 7, the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments and Congregation for Institutes of Concreted Life and Society of Apostolic Life for matters of their particular confidence, exercise the authority of the Holy See. That means when one of these congregations issues some rule or whatever, that should be taken as being the same as the Pope issuing it. Yeah. That's all that means. Previous norms, instructions, permissions, and customs that do not conform to the provisions of this are abrogated. Okay, so that's the abrogation of Samorum Pontificum. Yeah. It doesn't actually say that the missile promulgated, and even the way he put this, doesn't abrogate the missile promulgated by John the Twenty Third in 1962. Um, because that missile conforms 
to these instructions, which include provisions for the use of that missile by certain groups, yeah. by existing groups. And it, and it doesn't constrain the use of that missile outside of those groups. That is true. Um, and so I, I guess, okay, a couple things. Number one, there aren't a whole lot of good bishops. Hold on, <laughs> no, I gotta get coffee. <laughs> are there any truly good bishops? I mean, I know that there are bishops who are a little bit more with it, let's say. And actually, I, I shouldn't say, are there any truly good bishops? There are truly good bishops. They are suffering persecutions. And the more bishops begin to wake up to what it means in this world to be a good bishop, the more that bishop is becoming persecuted by the church itself. Yeah. That's, that's what it means these days to be a good bishop, is to suffer persecution from the Pope, basically. Yeah, and I I don't know I'm I mean bishops look if you, if you're a bishop and you're not suffering from this kind of uh, oppression um, you're not being a good bishop yeah you should be hated by these people if you're not hated by them you're doing something wrong and you're mm-hmm. not guarding your flock and I I don't know I mean. You've got a duty to uh, to guard us with your, your life. Your job is the salvation of souls. You're supposed to be the shepherd who would who would come yeah. come against the wolf, you know, and fight him. And you need to do that. And number one, the salvation of souls that are under your care now. Number two, the preservation of the deposit of faith for the souls who are going to come after you. Yeah. Those are your first two duties as a bishop. So if you are, if there is a bishop who understands what's going on here, um, he could, he, he probably would quietly. Um, if he were to do it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to priests and, you know, there, there, there's, you know, a fraternity of St. Peter's. And he goes to the priest and says, look, I can't let you as a group have mass uh, that break any of these rules here. But uh, Father So-and-So, who normally does your mass, um, he could join this parish and I could just let him have mass there whenever he wants. Yeah. Or if, that- if there are priests who, like for example, here in Indianapolis, Father Hollowell, who married... Um, my son, uh, no, he performed the marriage ceremony for my yeah. son. <laughs> he didn't marry your son. <laughs> Let's say that right. <laughs> Father Hollowell um, used to have regularly, um, just on his own, because he did that as part of a, being a parish priest, the traditional mass at yeah. Annunciation Parish in Brazil, Indiana. The bishop could allow him to continue doing that without violating a single letter of this motu proprio. Right. And that's the point that I'm trying to make here is that the bishops are not constrained the way people assume they are. 
Yeah, so the bishops cannot... The bishops who are trying to straddle the fence, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah, you have orders from Rome that you have to follow, and you have to be obedient. But you can uh, still allow the Mass and not break those rules. You can't, you now, can't blame it on the Pope, put it that way. What's interesting to me is that there are people out there who have the opinion, um, and, and I don't mean this, uh, uh, you know, in an opinion versus fact, but, but who are of a mind uh, whose belief is that it would be impossible because of the guidance of the Holy Spirit for a pope to actually abrogate the old mass and to actually do away with its use. Yeah, I don't... I, I don't uh, theologically. I don't know. I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't myself. I, you know, I'm not sold on that. But it is interesting that the Pope clearly intended to do that. The Pope clearly intended with this modo proprio to restrict the bishops' authority and ability to allow the old mass within their diocese, and yet his text left. You know, such a, a gaping segment of that untouched. I don't mean a gaping segment of what's currently, but a gaping segment of the bishop's authority untouched. So, I mean, it, it. Let's say, um, well, look, uh, uh, the masses that are there now, uh, the the ones that we can go to, developed the way they did. Because of the rules and things like that, so you had yeah, it, it, it was a right. an evolution of how these groups formed. If the groups are no longer allowed to be formed, uh, right now it would just change the evolution of the mass of the of the of the people who go to the mass. They would right. not be parts of groups anymore. You would start seeing uh, priests pop up here and there, only in good uh, dioceses where the bishop allows it. But, for example, but, like I said, a group does not mean a collection of Catholics. Right. So, for example, the, the, the very first um, instantiation of the indult mass... Um, I don't know if you had ever been like like the very first place they were doing it up on uh, Saint Monica's uh, next to uh, Corryville or whatever. Yeah, I remember that up by by UC. Yeah, um, those people, you know, they got together, they petitioned the bishop as a collection of faithful and so forth. But but there weren't. A group. I don't believe that they ever constituted. What would be considered a group within this motu proprio? Yeah, I mean, because there wasn't like some kind of singular leadership that spoke for the group, and and the group never had any kind of sort of canonical um, uh, incorporation or anything like that. It was just it, it, a collection of faithful who said, "Hey, we want the old mass," and the bishop allowed them to do it under. You know some some restrictions that he set up. Yeah, they didn't have a, a group uh, under this uh, motu proprio. 
they didn't have a constitution or a uh, mm-hmm. a creed of any sort or a rule that they followed. Right. Uh, you know exactly, and that's why I think that that when you and and most of these things that it talks about like to ensure that that uh, they do not deny the validity and legitimacy. How could that possibly apply to that particular collection of Catholics for a bishop to ensure that they don't deny? What's it going to go to every one of them and pull them? And then, you know, what does that even mean? So right. there's no way that that group of people, that collection of Catholics constitutes a group as indicated by this motu proprio. So for such collections of Catholics to continue to evolve and develop and petition the bishops would not be a violation of this motu proprio. Yeah. You know, I, okay, I, I could see you're right. The problem here, number one, again, is that there aren't, there are hardly zero good bishops. Um, no, I agree. Yeah, number I'm not two, saying that this is a big thing. That that hey, we can we can just put this out there and the the old mass will thrive. That, right. That's not my point. My my only point is that Traditionus Custodes leaves in the hands of the bishops way more power than people think. Yeah. Uh, number two, even a decent bishop is so scared right now of Pope Francis and his wrath. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh, and he is a wrathful pope. He, he, there's just no one worse than this pope. And uh, I mean, the the book that we're coming out with, I don't know, I think illustrates it perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but okay, yeah, I, I I see your point here. I just the only other question I have is he published those. Uh, Remember when no one asked any questions and he published answers? Oh yeah, that response. The... Adobe. I I reread Have that you read in that? the same light. We won't we won't go through that okay. um, response by response here. But I reread I reread those in the light of okay, these are responses to imagined questions about this particular motu proprio, and when you read it in that context. Um, it doesn't, uh, if you want to call it a loophole, it doesn't close the loophole. Okay. So the argument still holds even after yes. the dubia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now all we got to do is start convincing bishops. Fine, so to... I would like, the thing is, I wish we could get somebody like Timothy Gordon, who is a very um, legalistic-minded guy, to listen to this podcast and then think about it and say, okay, okay, let, let, let me, you know, and, and tell us where we're wrong, yeah. which we might be. To be honest. Or explore it further. The second this Moto Proprio came out, the first thing I did, I what I immediately thought was, um, there's got to be a loophole here somewhere. And I thought... <laughs> and it's a doozy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I, I thought someone like Timothy Gordon would immediately go through it and find it. And mm-hmm. and then he never talked about it. He never even never acted did. as though there's yeah. a possibility. I thought, why isn't anyone looking into this? I don't know enough about uh, the legalistic language, certainly not canonical language, to tell whether right. there is or not. But 
okay, again, like when I see words like should, that means something mm-hmm. to me. I yeah. Does it mean something different in law? Um, well, you know, the thing but, is, there are a few words that have a uh, a meaning in law that's well understood within the legal profession. But even Timothy Gordon right. has been, um, he himself is a textualist. He's he's He calls himself an originalist, but he doesn't mean original intent because you don't know the intent of the author. You don't know the mind right. of the author. But what he means is that any kind of thing like this, whether it's a, a command letter like this, a, a constitution, a law that's passed, whatever, um, the law is what the text says it is, period. But it's what the text says it is within the vocabulary of the people at the time that it was written would have been using to receive it. Right. And so as vocabulary changes, that doesn't change the law. You have to go back to the original popular vocabulary among those for whom it was originally written and and as they would have received it and as they would have understood it. Um, so That I, always I, makes sense to I'm me. And I faithful to that I, here. Here's the thing. I, I he, he recently did a podcast where he answered some things about Vatican II where Vatican II documents talked about other religions. I would hear people like uh, Taylor Marshall talk about this section of Vatican II. And I wanted to throw something through the radio because of the way he talked about it. I was like, that's not what it says. You have to read what it says, not what it implies. And it seemed like Marshall always got what it implies instead of what it says. Finally... Uh, Timothy Gordon did do a show on this and explained it real I mean it's exactly what I've been thinking for a long time now and and wishing somebody would just say Uh, Mm -hmm. we've said it on our podcast but that was nobody listens to our podcast so (laughs) speaking of uh, our podcast um, you, you sent me a a text that I forgot about, about, uh, what's his name? Uh, Dinesh D'Souza's guest. Uh, oh, that woman. She, she, the the abortion, survivor? abortion survivor. Yeah. Okay. I didn't read it. I didn't listen to it right away when you sent it because I'm listening to him and, and keeping, oh, keeping caught it, up. It wasn't a link to his podcast. It was a link to her website. Oh, I see. Well, so anyway. Click on that and not, Yeah. The funny thing is the way she talked about the pro-life movement is Is exactly exactly, what we were saying. Yeah. And it was like, I know I'm, I'm glad somebody else gets it. You know, like I said, we get these things and we point it out all the time and Mm -hmm. very rarely does anyone else get it. But, uh, she got it exactly. And for somebody with such a personal connection to it. Right. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. That was awesome. Um, okay. I, That's all I've got on that. This, okay. <laughs> I guess we'll get into news. The thing is, it's a really yeah. light news day, news week. Um, well, you know what? There's one news story that I'm assuming you're going to bring up that we can camp out on for a little while. Okay. What about, uh, Trump? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's get into that. They raided Trump's home, uh, 
the FBI. Was it the FBI or the it, DOJ? It was the FBI. Yeah, FBI raided his home to look for documents that the who was it? The archive, whatever. The, the National Archives said that they're they now, thought he maybe shouldn't have taken or something like that. Yeah, they're now in control of the FBI, I guess. I, yeah. <laughs> I was National listening to, like, again on Dinesh, but I was listening to sakes. Trump's attorney um, talking about this, and she's like, right. they, they'll like, talk about like presidential records, and she's like, every president before Trump has been allowed to decide for himself what presidential records are. Yeah. What is a presidential record. And the president has, on his own, without the need to consult or get approval from anybody, as the commander-in-chief, the ability, for example, to declassify anything he wants. Yeah. Or anything he thinks, you know, should be declassified. There's no excuse... For this kind of raid on Trump's residence. Now, you know, I hear I heard a lot of opinions on this, and I mm-hmm. I just disagree with most of them. Okay. Do you I disagree think, with the one I just said? <laughs> no. What I disagree with is what's going on here. I think this okay. is just a scare tactic. I think that's all it is. To who I mean for what? To Trump and to anyone else who wants to go against the party. Okay. And the party being the... The, the Democrats the in power elites. right now. Yeah, yeah. Those who are in power. Okay, let me ask you this. Do you think that there's any aspect of this being a fishing expedition to try to collect documents that may reveal something that they can try to... Uh, criticize, indict, or whatever Trump on. I think that's always there, but I don't think they even... I don't think they thought they would find anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. I mean, I, they could have done it differently if they were trying to actually find information. This right. was... at Okay, at best, they, they get in there and then they, they have something and they say, look what we found... They didn't need all these people for that. And right. what's exactly. more... They could have shown up with one guy, like two guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they, they just... It, this is... They might end up doing that. But this is all about trying to trying to uh, intimidate Trump. Create and, intimidation. And... Which, I mean... Anyone, really. You know, anybody who knows Trump knows that he's not going to be intimidated by this. But, okay, I agree with you. But... In the course of the past week, I had an insight. So, and you may disagree with this, or you may think I'm completely um, on uh, on key with this. But here's the thing. I used to think that, that there's like three different levels here, uh, and I used to be only aware of two of them. On the one hand, there's this whole aspect of the deep state, the swamp. Trump got in and he started talking about draining the swamp. Now, he kind of started taking a slow approach. I don't think it's because he necessarily wanted to be slow. I don't think it's because he thought he had time. I think it's because he found... It's like when, when you know, you walk into some... You know, the, you ever watch even a part of 
one of those episodes of a, of a show called Hoarders, where they, they kind of feature these people that can't throw literally anything away. Okay. If you were going to go in and, like, clean up one of their houses, where would you start? You would take a week just figuring out a strategy how to even go about starting to clean up something like that. Um, I think that there was an as- there's an aspect to that in the federal government um, that Trump, you know, he, he's like, yeah, he, he had the intention, but it's like, holy cow, where do I start? How do I even get a handle on this? How do I decide what has to go first? How do I figure out the right process for making it real and making it happen? How do I give the government back to the American people? Um, yeah. In a way, not only that's that's just going to be like, okay, as president, slash burn, whatever, but in a way that's going to last. Um, I think that is the source of his um, slowness in so-called draining the swamp. But nonetheless, yeah. he was, I think, starting to take real steps in that direction. And that meant that a lot of people were going to be losing... Um, power that they had within the United States, power to accomplish things, to do things. And this power, we know that it exists in this like administrative deep state. We have bureaucracies that are executive um, uh, agencies like OSHA or yeah. you know the whole Department of Justice. We have FBI, roughly whatever two point six million. Bureaucrats, employees, yeah, and that and, does and, not include uh, like freelance and right. contractors and stuff EPA, like that. EPA, whatever. But but the thing is, for, forget about the, the the regular employees. The people who are at the top echelons of these organizations, the department directors and that kind of stuff, they wield real power. Why? Because yeah. they get to make regulations that have the force of law. Either in terms of spending money or in terms, you know, with agencies like OSHA and EPA, in terms of controlling people's lives. Yeah, well, think um, about it. And the FDA... They don't have... It doesn't have to be voted on by Congress. The FDA have destroyed the small farmer. Yeah. There is no small farmer. And it's not because of corporations. It's because of the FDA. No, it's because of the FDA. What was that? Um... (laughs) <laughs> I farted. You're going to have to cut that out. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. <laughs> or not. That I was, don't know. Okay. Wow. Sorry. I heard it through my... Okay. Wow. Anyway. <laughs> so, point is that these heads of the... Or, uh, you know, like directors of these various departments within these bureaucracies and so forth... It's not just them. They don't become these directors on their own. Maybe some do. But yeah. a lot of them become directors because they rub elbows with these congressmen or they are the cousins of these this mm. senator or something like that. In other words, there's a a sort a kind of nepotism that exists. Uh, not not in 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 the like medieval way that nepotism was was a complete corruption, but there is a kind of nepotism of association that exists between the elected officials of government and 
the people who occupy these various director's offices and that kind of stuff within the bureaucracies, within the administrative deep state. So if Trump is going to drain the swamp, this nepotism of association gives the elected officials more power than just that of passing laws. It's like, okay, we can pass laws, but I can also talk to my cousin who is the director of such and such within OSHA and get him to decide or to pull together a body of their rulemaker or their uh, regulation writers to regulate that a certain thing is going to go a certain way. Yeah. And I can bring pressure that way. So on one level, what Trump represents, especially not just as, as a individual person, but the kind of politician he is, the kind who wants to give the American government back to the American people, drain the swamp, create transparency, and so forth, he represents a sort of existential threat to their power. On that level, it's like, okay, we have to oppose Trump. But that doesn't explain the kind of frenzy that you see in things like this, like this raid on Trump's residence, like the whole persecution of the January Sixers, like what yeah. has become clear um, of you know the, these these FBI provo- provoking you know various um, uh, conspiracies and that kind of stuff, yeah. so that they can you know arrest all the people and then tout it as hey we stopped these people from doing this thing. That uh, that doesn't explain what we're seeing. Okay, so I had my second level theory, which is this. Aside from the question of, okay, so you've got a politician who disagrees with them, and if he gets in power, he may sap away some of your power. Mm-hmm. But what Trump did was he was not a politician. He came in as a complete outsider, and without earning the right to be one of the elite, to be one of the rule makers, to be, to, without earning the right to occupy that you know, the seats of power that these people think they're entitled to, he won the highest office in the land. And probably in spite of them engaging in various corrupt practices to try to sway the election and so on and so forth. And that angered them and pissed them off. And to me, that for a long time, I thought that was the source of their frenzy, their vehemence against everybody associated with Trump. Okay, now I have a new theory. I still believe both of those. I have a new theory that's on top of those. And this one, this one to me carries some hope, and it's this. In the 2020 election, because of that anger about an outsider occupying a a real seat of power that they felt they were entitled to. A number of people who are both visible elected officials and invisible behind the scenes operators, FBI, and so on and so forth, engaged directly in real election corruption, real illegal election manipulation, punishable by law, prison term election manipulation and now that 
Trump doesn't look like he's backing down. Instead, it looks like he's all geared up to run in 2024. The guy who they brought the big guns out and violated a bunch of election laws and a bunch of, uh, you know, constitutional laws and so forth in order to defeat, if he gets back into office in 2024, the FBI serves at least the, you know, the top echelons, the director and, and various directors under him serve at his pleasure. He can yeah. fire them and replace them. And with a few chosen good friends in Congress, he could launch a real investigation of the 2020 election. I think these people, and this is what explains this frenzy of the January 6th persecution, the raid on Trump's house, and the the uh, attempt to go after all of his lawyers that supported his attempts, you know, to, to claim... Yeah. Uh, election mishandling and so on and so forth. I think these people are afraid for their necks. I think they realize that if he gets into office, he could bring about a real investigation that will result in them going to prison. And I think that's why this stuff is going on. Okay. I, I used to think that. Because I don't have another explanation for it that really fits the frenzy. I... Look, I think these people are so comfortable. To me, it, okay, if that was the case, well, then they they would have done it differently. But this is all point. about show. They would have rated that place differently. This was... To me, this is... No, I think that's I don't why they're so. rating it that way because they think the only way Still to stop... Still out of... To intimidate him. Is to intimidate. I think okay. they are frantic to take every little thing that they can and turn it into a big intimidation tactic or a prosecution tactic or an indictment tactic. Every, I mean, they are so afraid for their necks... That, that they're going to pull out the biggest guns on the smallest items that they possibly can to try to drive him away from running as president in 2024 or running for president in 2024. Could be. I don't know. But I don't think any of these people are scared. I really don't. I think they've got it wrapped up that tightly. I... I think it's more revenge. Did, I don't think they would than, bother. I don't think they would bother if they had it wrapped up that tight. I, I, these people. I, okay, think Pope Francis. These people are like vindictive. him. They're yeah, okay, vindictive. You can and, see it like as a vindictive. Okay, so we're back to my second theory: the anger that yeah. he dared to crash their house because they're the entitled ones. Yeah, and he's daring I, to do it again. He's daring to threaten it again. You know, he would yeah. be the second president in U.S. history to be president, not be president, and then be president again. Then do it again. There was one other president in U.S. history that did that. I forget who it was. So how's the law? Uh, can he can he still only run for one term if he won? Yes, he can still only serve. He, he's still... Um, constitutionally can only serve up to 
12 mu- uh, 12 years as president. So okay. if he were to win in 2024, um, he then he would not be able to run as president or as vice president. But let me pose a different scenario. Let's suppose that, uh, you know, a lot of upheavals in, in you know, the, the conservative side of America, a lot of uh, switching around in the Republican Party. And let's suppose that he and, uh, say, um, DeSantis and, and Florida get together and they decide, you know what, the winning ticket is not Trump DeSantis, but DeSantis Trump. Now, I don't actually believe that. I, I you know, I, I, I want to see Trump as president again. But let's suppose that they do that, and let's suppose they succeed. Now Trump is vice president. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, as having served as vice president, he could he could run as president again at some future date. But let's suppose then, so he wins that in the 2024 election, DeSantis becomes president in 2025, and a couple years later, uh, mid, say, 2027, DeSantis is assassinated or, or uh, dies of a disease or some kind of accident or whatever, and Trump becomes president. Okay, now he serves as president for only two years. So he's got his four years that he was elected, his two years that he replaced DeSantis, then he would still be able to run for another term. Yeah, okay. So that's how it works. You can't have more than 12 years as president. Okay. No, I'm sorry. You can't have more than 10 years as president. I would think 8. 10 years? You you can't have more than 10 years as president. So two and a half terms, basically. Okay. All right, well... Either way, they did raid him, and they, they weren't they weren't hiding it, and they were loud about it. Like they every time the FBI raids these little families, you know, it's like this is such a joke. I mean, it's a big show of they, force against what they, you didn't even need a show of force. He wasn't even there. Yeah, it's like what I'm do sorry, they expect? but like he left some kind of like like weird like paramilitary guards at the place. While he was gone or something? All these guys. The FBI, the CIA, they raid these little families and they try to make themselves ATF. look tough. Do yeah. they know what they look like? I they mean... look like thugs. I mean, like it, President uh, Bush described them correctly, jackbooted thugs. Yeah. I mean, but think of what they did in, in Waco or in mm-hmm. uh, Ruby Ridge. Ruby I Ridge. mean, yeah. it's like it took a whole army of them to bring down a family you know they couldn't even get that guy out of the compound without burning the place down and killing all the kids inside these people are the most incompetent group of thugs that ever existed aside from being thugs they're incompetent thugs it takes all their force all their weapons to accomplish anything and people are still less and less scared of them every year. That must have them scared all by itself. Yeah, I mean... What people, what can we do to keep people afraid of us? And it, it, people are standing up to them. And, okay, yeah, I guess I go to jail for the rest of my life. But um, I'm still going yeah, to stand up to Yeah, I mean, those January Sixers, who, some of whom are not taking the plea deals... Even though they're faced, you know, with a lot of uh, prison time, 
Uh, you know, I gotta hand it to them. They're doing the right thing. We're, uh, my prayers are with them. I hope something happens that will help them. I, I wish well, I'll tell you Trump what, would if, help them. I don't know. President, uh, if President Trump gets elected in 2024, I think his first act as president should be to pardon every one of them. Yeah. Whether convicted or they took a plea or whatever. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll see. All right. Well, that's that's that news item is right. Trump, the FBI. Uh, also in the news. Uh, okay, this whole Pelosi thing. Uh, China warns airlines to avoid areas over Taiwan as it conducts military exercises in response to Pelosi's visit to the island. Um, wow! And then and then launches missiles off the coast of Taiwan as part of military exercises. I don't understand what Pelosi's doing there. Why she had to go? What the? None of this makes any sense to me. That's what I don't get because you know Pelosi is a Chinese sellout. Yeah, just like Biden. All they have to do is, is offer her money if they don't want her to do something. There, well, there's something is, big. Are they, there's some. Are they asking her to do? Are they saying, look, we need an excuse to invade Taiwan, and so, if it looks like Taiwan is getting too cozy, and in other words. Does China want to make Taiwan their um, Ukraine? Yeah, well, I, I mean, we saw this Ukraine coming for a while. Because Ukraine was getting too cozy with NATO. There was, yeah. Hey, you, you know, okay, are they saying, hey, go visit Taiwan and we'll do all this bluster, but your visit will give us the excuse to invade Taiwan and just take it back and make it part of China? That's what makes more sense than anything else that I've heard. Yeah, I've heard kind of stupid theories. Like Nancy Pelosi has uh, stock options over there and she needed to go check on companies. And it's like, you don't do that That doesn't make in sense. Person. You do that through the internet. Well, or the, they, or she couldn't do it because all her phones are tapped. Give me a break. Oh. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. She, yeah. That's not how... Stuff works. She didn't need to go over there, and and to, there's something else. So I, what you just said, makes the most sense out of everything else I've heard. Uh, the American basketball player Brittany Griner is sentenced to nine years in prison by a Russian court after being found guilty of bringing uh, those, you know, the THC vape things into Russia. Uh, mm-hmm. I get everybody's making a big deal of this. That she's some kind of hero or something. She's, she brought drugs to a country that she knew she wasn't allowed but, to bring drugs to. What? Yeah, I mean, why is that? Yeah, freedom fighter. So no, what? I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> she's just a druggie. Um, Amnesty oh, International. Uh, okay, I, real, I'm going to interrupt you. Go back to what I said before. Grover Cleveland was the one who. Um, had two separate terms separated by an intermediate administration uh, in the White Grover. House. He was the 22nd and the 24th president. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Amnesty Sorry, International uh, releases a report alleging that Ukrainian forces 
endangered civilians by establishing bases and operating weapons in residential areas, schools, hospitals, and all those kinds of places, uh, violating international humanitarian law. Now, I was pointing that out from the beginning because they would say, oh, Russia invaded a hospital. And it's like, I don't think they invaded a hospital. They, they must probably have a military thing. Yeah, yeah and that's exactly that? what was going on. And Ukraine was not supposed to be setting up bases in mil- in residential areas, and they did. But the so, thing is, first of all, you know the the we've said before that we don't think that that the president of Ukraine is a good guy. Um, and we've also suspected that all of these uh, that that the body count has been too low for it to be the way the news has been reporting reporting it like if it says Russia bombed a hospital and killed four you people there? or something yeah I'm here I just lost did I lose you for a minute I wonder if hold on a second I think I lost you I wonder if you can you hear me you there yes I'm here you there Nope. No, I'm not. Hey. Hey, I think that one was my fault. Oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, so you'll have a big swap to cut out here. Yeah. Okay, anyway, so we've talked about that before. How it's like even when the news reports that Russia bombed, say, a hospital or a school or something like that, and it's like killing four people. Yeah. What? Yeah, Stuff four like that. people. So, so it you just bomb a didn't hospital make sense. and only kill four people. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean that. And, and in fact, that that was like, it's like okay, the news shouldn't be that they bombed the hospital and killed four people. The news should be that they killed only four people. Well, okay, now this actually brings that into a sensible light. Yeah. And I don't like inter- uh, Amnesty International as an organization, but this kind of comports with what we've been saying all along yeah uh, three people are killed and a fourth person is seriously injured by a lightning strike in Lafayette Square in Washington D.C. Oh. so a single lightning strike kills three people uh, wow and then one no, person mom- is killed so I guess in um, in Cuba there was a lightning strike that killed one person and then injured 121 others because it started a fire. And um, that fire destroyed 40% of the country's main fuel storage. Whoa, wow. That's huge. So lightning is coming down on Washington, D.C. and Cuba. Well, you know, um, Mom had told me once, and I don't know if she told you this, um, one of her brothers was, um, like, there were like three guys, they were all walking together, and one of them was uh, struck by lightning, Like like the one guy was struck by lightning, the guy next to it, and died. The guy next to him um, was, like, knocked out or or 
yeah. suffered something. Something. And then her brother was like knocked onto his like off of his feet clearly or something like that. I forget what yeah. it was. I mean it was like so close like that. Um but it's like I given how much current goes through a lightning bolt, I I'm kinda surprised that you could be walking next to someone struck by lightning and not die yourself. Yeah. There's a lot of electricity there. It's it's an insane amount. Wish we could harness that. Uh, so in Mexico, the cartel guns down, uh, they burn down dozens of stores and block streets with burning cars, uh, in a couple different states in response to the arrests of some of their high figures by the federal police. So there's like open war going on in some of the cities in, uh, Mexico. Between the cartels okay, are, and the federal police. Between the cartels and the Mexican Mexican federales. Yeah. Well, at least the federales are doing something. I, you know, I, the Mexican cartels. I mean, they're almost like a foreign they're, power unto themselves that needs to be reckoned with. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I knew this guy from uh, Mexico, and he told me that. In Mexico, um, I think I think he was here because he was running from the cartel. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. he told me that in Mexico, you either pay taxes or you pay bribes. You have to do, if you're a business owner. Oh, right. You can either pay the government to protect you or you pay the cartel to protect you. Uh, One of those the taxes two things. are protection money, not, it, it's just official instead of unofficial. Right. Okay, okay. And it's wow. so foreign to what we experience here, but I I think I that's know. coming. Yeah. I think it's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, Domino's Pizza closes all its stores in Italy um, because the franchise holder files bankruptcy. The chain says that it was uh, kind of, that it almost... That it was severely impacted by the COVID nineteen restrictions, not by the COVID nineteen, but by COVID nineteen oh, restrictions. Oh, by the restrictions. Yep, yep. Yeah, <clears throat> and so they've closed all their stores in Italy. Um, that's all the news I got. Hmm. You know, it's a slow news day. By the way, I just heard I reached out to mom. Uncle John is the one. Um, he, you know, and Uncle John is. Oh, okay. Away, but, he ran under a tree to get uh, two boys to go under the concrete bleachers and lightning struck. Okay, so he was trying to get under some bleachers with a couple of boys and and as they were passing under a tree, lightning struck the tree. Killed Jeez. one of them and knocked Uncle John and the other one out. So it didn't even strike the boy, it struck the tree. Yeah. And killed one. That's insane. Mm. Oh, by the way, the uh, apparently Brittany Griner, she is one of those sports people who refused to uh, kneel for the national anthem, or who refused to stand for the national anthem. Oh, a kneeler, and uh, yeah, 
Oh, the the one who's who's now being touted as this freedom fighter for for taking drugs in yeah. a country and who's <laughs> trying to drum up some oh. support for herself from her country and asking her it's country like, hey, to come hey, get hey, her out of jail. America, come save me. Yeah, America, right. who I who I hate, come save me. No way. Yeah. <laughs> That's likely. All right. You know, it's a slow news day for nonsense, too. But, I'm going to start with uh, this guy. This is this is just the kind of thing that it it's just fun that somebody did. Uh, yeah. So, a, a uh, scientist in France, uh, Etienne Klein... Um, took a picture of a, a slice of sausage, like uh, Spanish sausage or whatever, chorizo sausage. And if okay. you look at it, okay, it's against a black background. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. And he tweeted it out saying that it was a picture of um, Proxima Centauri from the James Webb Space Telescope. Oh, okay. Proxima Centauri, I guess, is like one of the stars that's closest to the sun or something like that. Yeah. Uh, he's a research director at France's Alternative Energies and Atomic Energy Commission. And he was just having fun. So he took a picture of this sausage. <laughs> and he told <laughs> everybody it was hey, a star. Here's a picture of a star from the new telescope. <laughs> I wonder if anyone called him out on I, it or did he have to I tell know, it's, people it's like that's what I'm he, he says this level of detail a new world is revealed day after day <laughs> I here's the thing I, I'm here I keep hearing everybody talking about the uh, about it being fake about the telescope being fake I, oh. and I just I don't believe I that I think people think it's fake because they don't understand how it could actually be where it is yeah at the because it's at that Lagrangian uh, point, um, and, and what's interesting is it's actually orbiting a Lagrangian point. That's really cool. Um, I don't even what's I don't know what that is. So there are some points. Um, there's one that is like, and I think that's what this telescope is. That is like. A certain distance further away from the Earth, in in the the direction away from the Sun, where something could orbit and, and like sit there and orbit with the same orbital time as the Earth, um, because it's being affected by not just the Sun but the Earth as well, and like. One po- obvious point would be on the far side of the Earth, and then it would be exactly you know opposite. But then there's another one that is like a little bit closer to the Sun. Um, but so you're saying it would behind it, the Earth. You're saying it in relation to the Sun. It would always be on the same side of our planet. No, what I'm saying is that it would take. It would be further away from the because you know about like how orbital dynamics work. If the further away from the sun you are, the fur, the longer it takes to get around the sun. Right? Yeah, and 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 the slower you go, and so on and so forth. So it's like 
Jupiter takes longer to get around the sun than the Earth, and Mercury goes around the sun faster than the Earth. Okay. Okay, but because of these, the way the gravity of the Earth would interact with it, these Lagrangian points, uh, and this one particular that the, the uh, James Webb Space Telescope is at, it's further away from the sun than the Earth is, but it takes exactly the same amount of time to go around the sun that the Earth does. So it tracks uh, the Earth okay. around the sun. But what's interesting about these Lagrangian points is But it that would also they, stay in the same spot, wouldn't it? In relation well, to the Earth? I, I, in relation to the Earth's relation to the sun, it would always be in the same spot, right? Uh, the Lagrangian point is, yes. Now, the Earth, of course, okay. is rotating. It's not always facing the same side of the Earth. Yeah, but it's but, at yeah, the, it same, would be, in, right, okay. the same spot going around the sun. But here's the thing. Some of these Lagrangian points are only metastable so that if you get there, you could track. But if you get a little bit off, then you're going to start drifting and you have to get back on target. But some okay. of them are fully stable and they act as like little gravity wells and you can orbit around them as though there was a planet there and that's what the James Webb Space Telescope is doing. Oh. It's really cool. So I guess that sounds too sci-fi for some people and And they think, oh, it must be a fake. Exactly. Doing the math or looking into it at all, they just well, it must be fake. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I never thought... It was. I know. I don't think the stuff that NASA does is fake. I just. <laughs> I just no. no. When I look China, at their what, maybe. what they what NASA. they tell us, <laughs> and and the way they open up their records to us, I just don't see any yeah, reason to no. think that they're fake. It's not Actually, like the I Biden think, administration. <laughs> no, NASA is the most transparent government agency in America. Yeah, probably ever. <laughs> Yeah. In any country. In any I mean, country. <laughs> NASA's like the the one institution I hope stays alive, uh, you know, for, we can forever. We the swamp, but keep NASA. <laughs> yeah, keep NASA. And there's probably a swamp at NASA, but uh, all the yeah, same. Probably. But they no, do some amazing work. They are work. very uh, conscientious about the, the, you know, everything they do is is ultimately owned by the taxpayer because the taxpayers are paying for it. I, I don't think most people understand they can go and get the same information that is open to the science world, you know, at the universities yeah. and stuff like I that mean, these, from these, NASA. These, it's amazing. Um, these groups, these science groups that have published uh, these papers from the initial James Webb Space Telescope images and stuff, um, anybody capable of of doing that work could have downloaded it to their computer and done the work and published the paper of course you right. know to do some of the work they do you need like time on a university supercomputer and stuff like that but yeah anybody could do it yeah it's amazing i never well, for one anyway. second thought that it was fake yeah um this um etienne klein uh he sent the picture out a few days later, he, he sent out a tweet. Um, he said, According to contemporary cosmology, no object belonging to Spanish charcuterie exists anywhere but on Earth. 
There are no outer space pepperoni. There's no outer space sausages. <laughs> okay. Looks like a pepperoni slice. That's what I, yeah, I think chorizo and pepperoni are very close in okay. composition. I guess. But you could see the, okay, star and, and like sunspots, like, and you know, yeah. and stuff like that. You could, in fact, I guess what you could do is, is like you take a look at that and you think, huh, it's weird how under the right light filtering, our sun almost looks like a sausage. <laughs> yeah. Except that, I mean, the edges, I don't know why no Oh, yeah, it doesn't look round the edges. Like, like a star would be. Yeah, those edges are, like, yeah. way too... <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to stretch these stories because I only have three. Okay. Uh, okay, so, um, you know, sometimes I really appreciate it when courts say, hey, that's a constitutional violation or something like that. I'm becoming more and more... Um, to think it's, you know, like I said, I, I like to be a textualist. So where the Constitution says Congress shall make no law, okay, that means Congress. But where the Constitution says the right of the people, that means everywhere. Anyway, okay. apparently some court in, uh, where was it, Michigan, uh, found that... Um, Saginaw, the city of Saginaw, um, violated people's constitutional right against uh, illegal search and seizure, Fourth Amendment, by marking their tires with chalk to see whether they had moved or not when they were parked under a parking meter. Illegal search and seizure... For to, marking tires. To mark a tire with a chalk. Now, I never like, you know, to me, the, the chalk marker on the on the tires, that's like one of those, um, like the lowest of the low. I have my yeah. list of like, like occupations that, oh, wow, if you are, if you're one of these, you are like no use to society and we're just trying to find a way to, to help you, you know have a living or something like that well the the meter maids and the tire chalk markers that's one of them um well okay i don't know i mean look we've got parking we've only got so much parking space and you can't just come in and leave his car there for a year and it's really annoying if you can't find one because people won't move out of them yeah so i can kind of see that i my my thing would be the uh seat belt checkers those are the but here's the, of the thing. It's, okay, there's there's like two different things. There's the parking meters. Those are meters. They're driven by coins. If there's any time on the meter, the car can be there. If there's no time on the meter, if it's expired, no reason the for car chalk. gets a ticket. Period. Cool. Yeah. Cut and dry. It's like when those. I guess these are those cases where they say like parking for thirty minutes or something like that. I guess those are the, either that, the places where they're doing that. Either that or parking for so many days. Like, look, it come, sometimes you have to uh, report an abandoned vehicle because it's just, it's like, it's been there well, for weeks. Yeah, but weeks that's when they, they just stick a sticker on the windshield. It says, hey, call no, this number. They mark the tires. This is your car. Because you, you, you left a car on the at our house. I, yeah, but I've seen them at our house. You left a, what was it, a Sundance or something at our house for a while. Yeah, Yeah. and you guys, and then Jason drove it down when we got into Georgia. 
Okay, but it was at, it was here for a long time. In front of the house. Oh, like that on the And they marked the tires. Yeah, they marked the tires and you didn't leave keys. I didn't leave a key for that? I know I did, because you guys drove it down. I, maybe you well, got Jason into it some it other down. way. But we didn't have the keys, and we didn't want to get it towed. So they marked the tires, because we, we happened to look out the window and see them marking the tires. Oh, okay. And then we, uh, we it was a stick, remember? Yeah. So you just put it in neutral we, and let it roll a little bit? Yeah, we rolled it like a, a foot, and then that was it. It's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> and then it didn't that's, get towed. That's surprising. Okay, I don't remember not leaving the key. I remember leaving the car with you guys, and then Jason drove it down later. Um, yeah, that was... It was much later, though. Anyway. Um, so, But anyway, the point is, the, the, the places where you're marking the tires, the, the places where, like, parking is, is uh, precious, like a precious resource... Yeah. They have meters. Put the meter. Yeah, put the you meter. You don't need there. to mark the tires. Of course, nowadays they don't even need the meters. They just say, "Pay for parking," and you can either go pay a machine like a block away, or you can do it on your phone. Oh yeah, I've seen that. Like like a lot of a sign, and you you go to an app on your phone and you put in a number that's on the sign, and then a credit card yeah. number. And and it, well, how long are you going to park there? Okay, let me. I'll I'll be there for two hours. Okay, it'll cost you this much, and then it. And you know what's interesting? At least my experience so far has been that those seem to be cheaper per hour than the meters. Um, I, I would have thought know. they'd be more expensive. Now, my only experience with that has been in up in uh, Purdue and Lafayette. Oh, uh, I use them downtown. Which Cincinnati maybe it's cheaper because that's students and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, judge says okay. that the caulk, the chalking of tires is illegal. It's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. I, I would not. If I was a judge, I would not have ruled that way. It's you know that's that's a state matter. That's yeah. not a constitutional matter. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but but he did kind of give the city a break. He said, "Okay, you don't have to refund everybody's ticket. You just have to pay each person a dollar or something like that." Really? He said that. Yeah. <laughs> no. What about all the cops who are pulling people over and forcing them to take breathalyzers? That sounds like illegal That's search and seizure. Illegal search and seizure. Exactly. <laughs> Chalking tires is something you can see from the outside. I mean, plus where where they chalk tires. There's a either a, a known law or a posted time limit or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, I guess, you know, anything that you can hang on, on one of those amendments. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, sometimes the mood hits you to just go dig a ditch. You ever been in one of those... Uh, Moods. I have never been in that mood. I have not either. <laughs> you know, Dad has. He seemed to always be digging ditches. Yeah, I know. But the thing is, he'll he'll make fun of people. Uh, what do you mean? We were. Well, we were. Uh, if you ask him about hillbillies, he'll say they like to take the shirts off and they love to dig. <laughs> 
and he's out there in the backyard shirt off digging a ditch from the house to the barn. Yeah, for no reason. <laughs> well, but so that like, he can run. He wanted to run gas, water, and electric. Yeah, I know. But the thing is, like, we were passing. I think we we worked together for a long time, and it's like oh, for yeah, an entire yeah. year. Uh, one of the rest areas was under construction. I said, why is this always under... It's like they're always digging here. He -hmm. said, they're just hillbillies. (laughs) (laughs) They like to take their shirts off and they love to dig. They love to dig. Was it in Kentucky by any chance? Yeah, it was in Kentucky. Yep, that Lexington. dad's uh, uh, stereotype of... uh, uh, Absolutely. In fact, there's... What the, what's that bridge that has like the two levels? Like the southbound is on, uh, yeah, the, is on the bottom. The Brent Spence. Brent Spence. Yeah, the 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 northbound is on top. No, the northbound is on bottom, and the southbound is on top. And he said, "Well, why?" And he used to have that joke. Why? Why did the uh, Brent Spence bridge put the southbound on top and the northbound on bottom? And the answer is so that the people going into Kentucky can drop their shoes down to the people coming out of Kentucky. <laughs> Stupid joke, but <laughs> anyway, uh, so <clears throat> this fellow uh, just, I don't know, maybe he was a hillbilly. This is in uh, Salt Lake City, though, but he got, a, he got it in his head that he wanted to dig. So he went and um, got this like big excavator you know the, the the backhoe kind of thing. Uh, took it for a joy ride. Went over to a uh, supermarket and dug a trench with the with the ex with the backhoe. <clears throat> it like on a parking lot. All right, so he okay, got so in his extra, ex- excavator a backhoe, drove it okay. nearly a mile, and then dug up a parking lot at a supermarket. Uh. Where do you get? Would he it rent was on it? A, it was at a construction site. Did he steal it? I I guess you could call it that. He I guess he stepped into it. The key was probably there, and he just started it up and and drove it about a mile away and dug up this parking lot, a, a, a trench along a parking lot outside of the. Uh, uh, what was the that's name a of double it? whammy. I know. It's. I mean, he steals like, an excavator. What? You know how much those things are worth. Oh, and God. then I, and just, just started going, digging. I wonder if. Oh, he cut. Yeah, through, it looks like, like he hit a couple pipes. He, he cut through pipes and and fiber optic lines and stuff like that. But it's like, what puts you in the mood to do that? What made you think that you weren't going to jail? <laughs> yeah, that, for something like that. Four hundred five thousand dollars worth of damage. No, forty thousand forty point. No. $40.5,000. $40,000 worth so, of damage. Yeah. $40,000 worth of damage because he just decided he would dig a hole. He was going to dig a hole. I'm going to dig a uh, hole. According to the court records, he has... I wonder if he took his shirt off. <laughs> Probably. Well, he has a history of charges and convictions raising, ranging from identity theft to sexual assault. Well, he's done it all. That's uh, he, <laughs> that's one guy who wants to go to jail. 
I, I wonder if he's just, just like, one of those people that he just I I can't survive on the outside. I want to go to the I, jail. Okay. <laughs> so, Three squares and instead of instead of knocking over a convenience store, I'm going to go grab this excavator backhoe and dig a trench and in a supermarket. Do something fun. <laughs> do something everybody's going to talk about. For that's a long right. Time. That's right. <laughs> It's like, hey, you know, I, I, maybe it's like he he wants to go back to jail, but he's like, don't mess with me because I could dig your grave. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are okay, like they there there was a guy down the street from us who, uh, I guess he was a little slow, but he lived with mm-hmm. his mom, and then finally his mom died, and I think he tried to hang in there for a little while. The his bank, er, his house got taken i think i think just for the taxes oh Um, wow is this jeff yeah yeah uh eventually he he grabbed a gun and he robbed a bakery and oh wow but it was more to be able to just get taken care of by the system i didn't know that he had i think that's what it was about yeah that's always what i assume because the guy couldn't really he's just not competent enough to take care of himself yeah and once his mom died uh, it was like kind of like not a you know not total but just a little bit slow yeah and he just didn't have what it takes to make it and so maybe that's what this guy could be he wanted to do it in a big way (laughs) speaking of excavator they're excavating our street right now are they Digging up oh, pipes. Oh yeah, mom and, sent a picture to me. Well, they dug up my sidewalk and my yard, and then they happened to hit the gas line, so they had to come in and turn our gas off, fix that, turn it back on, check everything. But here's the thing: in front of my house for the past year, I've been watching this sidewalk square sink lower and lower, and I know it's going to only a matter of time before the city comes by with a thing that says hey you have to replace that square because and I know it's going I just can't afford to do it but the funny thing is that the square that they had to dig up was that one so it's taken care of and I don't have to worry about it now all right they dug up the square that that needed to be replaced anyway so well you know yeah, that's kind of nice that they picked that area to yeah. dig through. You know, this guy's uh, antics, though, reminds me of a uh, prank. I, I've always been kind of a fan of pranks, although there, there's a fine line between pranks and vandalism. And if yeah. you can stay on the, the, the prank side of that line, that's I think that's where the real art is. Um, like, for example, like, you know, I... I when I was in college, uh, I was with a group of friends. We were, you know, we had rented a house for the year and, you know, we were all living. It was like a, a four, there were four of us, so a four bedroom house. And one of the guys had gone home earlier than I for Christmas break. So once they were all gone, I went into one of the guy's rooms and then we had, the, the other of us had all talked about it because he had left like earlier than all of us. I went into his room and I wired it, um, 
his through his room you could get access to the basement and I I opened the switch panel on the wall for the light and stuff and then hooked some stuff up to his bed and, and This story is taking a long time. Sorry. I made it so that <laughs> when his light was off, if he laid down in bed, the light would turn back on. But then when he got up out of bed, the light would turn back off again. Well that's brilliant. Did it, it was did it work? Hilarious. Huh? Did it work? Did it really work? Did it work well? Okay. Yeah. Um, of course it worked. Anyway, the point is, I like pranks. Well, this story yeah. reminds me of um, a prank that I read. A guy who was like a one of those like really big pranksters saw a bunch of people standing around with. A, Obviously, nothing had actually started. Nothing had been dug up. Nothing, no ground broken or anything like that. But they had excavators and and all of that kind of stuff sitting there. And guys were sitting around, kind of waiting for the foreman to show up for whatever it is yeah. they were supposed to do. And he went and he just grabbed a coat that, uh, like a jacket that was sitting there, and a hard hat, and put it on and said, "Okay, guys, come with me." And he he had them set up barricades and mark off a section of the street and start digging, just like. Just making stuff up. <laughs> I, wonder if I don't know whether I don't know whether he he was like you know received any uh, he had to receive some kind of jail time for that. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the Hicks boys? Yeah. In uh, Fairmount, uh, there was a construction site, and they went down there, and the the keys were in the ignitions. They started driving the machines around. Oh wow. Yeah, wow, okay. They didn't excavate they would anything, do that. but... No, no, they wouldn't, yeah, but that's, they would just do that for fun. Yeah, and they did. And I wish I had the guts and the opportunity, but I've <laughs> yeah. had neither, so... <laughs> the combination. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, that was my last... That's the reason I spent so much time on it, because it's my last story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, we got a shorter show than normal, but actually, we used to make all the shows last about this long. Yeah. 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 That's, we uh, just, we got tied into that stupid letter from Pope Francis, which, as I said, uh, maybe, maybe two more weeks I can get this book out. Uh, it's, the writing's done, the first draft is done, the artwork is done, uh, just got to proofread and stuff like that now. And, all right. Uh, but anyway, think about what we said, and as always, circle those beads. Keep on it, everyone. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.